So today's scripture is Nehemiah 9, verse 6. And we have been going through a series in Nehemiah. Pastor Albert has been leading us. And we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And we're doing that with Nehemiah now. That's our teaching style. And so if you are new here or have missed messages on our website, you can either download podcasts or now we have a great video feature. So you can actually watch the message too. Okay, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the Lord who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Good morning, Myron. I'm going to miss you. I wish my daughters were a little older. It's actually the highest compliment I can pay a young man. Please, if you're a young man, don't come and ask me, do you view me like that too? Please don't do that. You're going to put me in a tight spot because I'm kind of honest and I'm going to tell you, no. no. Myron, yes, you know. So don't ask me. But in all seriousness, I am serious. I do wish my daughters were older. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our church and for blessings such as our brother Myron, who we send off to study more about you. And I pray, Lord, that as our church is kind of in a place where it cycles through receiving wonderful people and sending out wonderful people, we just ask, Lord, that we're just that small part in your kingdom of doing your will. In Jesus' name. So here we are, Nehemiah chapter 9, continuing on in our series. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all of you fathers. And I have a gift for you this morning. It is an ancient Jewish history lesson that we're going to go over in verses 6 through 15. In actuality, that's what chapter 9 is. If you read along with us on the screen there, that's what it is, right? It's a Jewish history lesson. And so we don't have time to cover the entire chapter this morning, so we're just looking at these verses. Now, some of you may be wondering, why in the world are we bothering to study ancient Jewish history? How does that apply to us? Well, It's important because it's part of theology, which is essentially this. It's the study of the relationship between God, humans, and the universe. 
pretty huge, huh? Pretty big subject matter, right? Who is God? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where did the universe come from? Where are we going? Does any of this matter? What's life's purpose? All those types of questions are in theology. So you're going to study awesome stuff. And you can't get comprehensive answers to all of those questions from any science. Even if you combined all scientific studies together, you couldn't do this. And maybe the closest you'll ever get to it is the study of philosophy. But still, that's a really distant second. But there's no subject matter that even comes close to answering those questions as well as theology does. None. And the ancient Jewish history we find here in chapter 9 helps us with our study of theology. Now some of you are still wondering, still, so what? Who really cares about this stuff? Because there are a ton of people out there who feel this way. Theology may answer some important questions, but I'm concerned about now. I'm concerned about the present. I'm concerned about the evils and the injustices that we need to address right now. Well, I'd like to challenge that they aren't two separate subject matters, that these are actually really well integrated with one another. Theology integrates our life now with what we understand about our relationships with God, with one another, and with the universe. Theology is a blueprint to life. It helps us to know who we are, how we fit here, how to parent children, how to love our spouses. All of those really important questions hinge on our theology. Now, a weakness that many Christians today have is that they aren't concerned with theology. That they leave it to some folks way back when who've written books and now we just kind of read those things and we kind of move on. And some of us believe that Theology is insignificant, that Christians are to be more involved with sociology or environmental studies or education or all these justice-oriented subject matters which are very important, which we need to be involved in, but we can't neglect theology. And just because some people claim to be religious doesn't mean that they know about theology. They may even know or own religious books, attend religious classes, go to religious places, but they still don't know much about this subject matter. This includes Christians. And it happens all the time. People who claim to be religious, but they are far from God. Don't you know a lot of Christians who go to church, but they're actually far from God? That they don't live their faith through their lives. They just kind of come and attend and then they leave. And some of them even know scriptures and some of them don't. And the ones that know the scriptures actually don't practice the Christianity that they proclaim in their everyday lives. We all know these people. And the people they work with, the neighbors, they live around people that they go to school with don't even know that they are Christians. And some of those who are open with their faith live lives of hypocrisy, which is even worse than being irreligious. Now, why pretend to have a relationship with God when you don't? Why live a religious life without a relationship with God? Why bother? So, we're going to go over some ancient Jewish history and theology this morning. And some of you love nutrient-dense spiritual food. Some of you love this. So you'll enjoy what the scriptures have to say to us this morning. Others of you, you're going to have to grit this meal. You're just going to have to make that face and close your nose and drink it down. But these are the building blocks of our faith. These are the things 
that move with our values and our worldview. So what we'll see clearly from today's study is the goodness of God. You won't be able to miss that in this study. That God is really good. Because if God is not good, then how can we believe that he is the author of love and grace and mercy, peace, joy, and all those wonderful things if you don't believe he's good? And this may be where some of our problems lie in that we don't believe that God is good. If you don't find yourself to be content, perhaps you're questioning God's goodness. Ask yourself how you look at loss, such as the loss of a loved one. How do you perceive that? God is good and blessed your life for a time with that individual, or that God is not good because that individual is no longer with you. How do you look at God's provision, that God is good and blessed you with what you have, or that God is not good because you don't have all that you want? Is God good in who he is, or do you view him as not good because he needs to be different than what you are experiencing with him? So how is God good? We look at verse 6 here. You are the Lord, you alone. You made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God is really good in his creation. See, he didn't need us, we need him. He's self-sustaining, he's self-sufficient. So why did he create the universe? Why did he create us? Because he's good. That's why. Before creation, there is nothing. And everything we need to live was created by him. Why? Because he's good. We are sustained by his good creation, by his goodness. And it's not just that he has provided for us. He has provided for us abundantly. In that the things we experience are more than just for our existence, more than just for our survival. Think about this. Think about what you see. What do you see? The beauty that we experience through sight in his goodness? Color? Light? All of the beauty in the world? You wives, your beautiful husbands? You know, It's Father's Day, I had to go that way. So how about taste? Have you thought about this? Taste? This one's actually my favorite one. A wide array of fruits and vegetables and the combination of all that yummy stuff with spices and herbs and all those things. If it's just mere survival, if it's just existence, wouldn't we just need like just some sort of starch or some sort of protein and just leave it at that? But you have this wide array of awesomeness. What about your sense of smell? How many wonderful fragrances that we smell. You know, those flowers, that fresh mountain breeze, that fresh ocean air. How about the things that you hear? The animals, the birds chirping, the wind, the oceans, waves roaring, like all of that stuff. What about the things that you touch? The textures and the temperatures and all the richness of all the things that God created for us to experience. See, we don't just exist. We don't just survive. 
There is a beauty to experience through all of the senses that God has created in us. And we experience his goodness through creation. We don't just survive. We don't just exist because he wants a relationship with you. You feel all this stuff. You experience all this stuff. And even though he created all of it, he shares it with us to be a steward over his creation. You see how wonderful he is? You see how good he is? Science can't define goodness. Science has its place in what it can teach us, but it can't explain goodness. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 9, David wrote this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The worldviews that attempt to remove God from his creation don't have very good explanations as to the absence of God. They don't explain beauty. They don't explain goodness. They don't explain creativity or love. And when we're just religious, not embracing the creation he made for us, what's the point of keeping up with religion if we can't recognize his goodness? And in this case, in his creation. Now, I think many do recognize the goodness of creation. Because many are enjoying, as we speak, the beauty of the Bay Area. Whether they are in parks or lakes or oceans or mountains or wherever they are this morning, they're experiencing all the beauty of creation. They just don't have a relationship with the creator who made them. Now, how else is God good? Verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now, who was Abram? Not a former intern, but who was Abram? Abram was one of... Many, 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 many Semitic people who lived in the Middle East when he was around. It's not like he was a lone guy, right? There's many Semitic people during this time. And his ancestors didn't know God. His ancestors were idol worshipers. And so there was nothing in Abram's life that would indicate to us that he would eventually serve God. That he would follow Yahweh. There's no indication of that. But then we see in Genesis chapter 12 that God did indeed choose him. Now why? It's the same reason why God chose you. Same reason why God chooses you. You can't really explain it because many of us don't have Christian heritages. You go far back enough, someone back in your line is not a Christian. Right? And so 
Some of us do. Some of us go further than others. Mine goes back to my great-grandmother who became a Christian in China when missionaries went to her village, and that's where it came to me. And some of you go further than that, and some of you don't. Some of you, you're the first Christians in your entire family. But here in Abram's family is a history of idol worshipers. But God chose him, just as God chooses you. And this is another way that we see his goodness. He chose you. And all of us are given a new identity, a new name, essentially. Just like Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. God chooses us, and then we are changed. And that pride that was once there is replaced with humility. That hate is replaced with love. That darkness is replaced with righteousness. That anxiousness is replaced with peace. And so God's goodness is displayed in his creation, in his choosing of you. And here's a third sign of God's goodness, his redemption, verses 9 and 10. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So this is the story of the Exodus. When Moses was called by God to set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. And God performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, but he still didn't let his people go until this last sign, which we find in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And with this, there's a festival attached to that, and that's the festival of Passover. And so here's another feast. And when we go back into Moses' day, when we look at the Passover, what happened there? In Exodus chapter 12, the Israelites were commanded to get the blood of lambs and goats, these sacrificial lambs, and to put them on the doorposts and to put them on the lentil. Put them on the doorposts and put them on the lentil. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now Nehemiah chapter 9, 11 and 12 read this. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them the day in which they should go. How are these ancient Jewish history stories recorded in Exodus and Nehemiah to apply to us? How is this redemption to us? We look to Jesus as that Passover lamb with the blood of Christ on the doorposts, on the lintels of our life. Where that judgment passes over us, when the judgment of God passes over us because of the blood of Jesus on the cross. This is how it applies to us. Why did God send his only son Jesus to be our Passover lamb? It goes back to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 9. You saw the affliction. 
that God saw that. God saw our affliction. He heard our cries. He has seen the hopelessness, the darkness, the brokenness, the absence of His presence. God sees our affliction. Do we? Do we see our own affliction? And without seeing our own affliction, it's really difficult to cry out to God. You can't cry out His name if you don't see a problem with yourself that you need Him. And so you look at verse 10. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. See, God has made a name for himself. People didn't just create, oh, Lord, you're great. and all these. It's him. He did it. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, their afflictions. Redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's why we observe communion every week. And it's why every Jew understands the Passover. How the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel saved them from judgment. It saved them from death. It gave them the mercy and deliverance that they needed to pass over that judgment. And you look at what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Redemption. Here God established and displayed His authority, His power, His rule, setting Israel free from the bondage of Egypt. And today we have redemption through Jesus. God's goodness revealed in His creation, in Him choosing you, in His redemption of us, and fourthly, His provision. Verse 13, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. See what God did there? You came down, spoke, gave. This can all be found in Exodus chapter 19. But how does this ancient Jewish history apply to us? How is this relevant to us? We look at Jesus, who came down from heaven, spoke to the apostles and disciples, and gave them everything that they needed to change the world and deliver people from darkness. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now look back at this. This is really interesting. Look back at the order that God provided to reveal his goodness. Look at this really closely, please. Creation choosing us, redemption, and then provision. God redeemed the Israelites before the law. 
Yet how many Christians live as though the law comes before redemption? They were redeemed, and then God gave them the right rules, the true laws, the good statutes, and the commandments for the real flourishing of their lives. We have been redeemed by Jesus, and we have received his law to also receive true flourishing of our lives. But how many of us Christians live differently than that? That we live with the law first, without the sight of redemption first. Jesus did it first. And when we look at the law, we tend to think of God as this militant disciplinarian in heaven just waiting to crack down on us. You shouldn't do that. You should live like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. And all these types of rules. But let me show you the heart of God. Let me show you the heart of God as to why we do have these statutes, why we do have these rules and laws and commandments. Even though redemption came first. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and commandments which I command you today. And here is why. That it may go well with you. This is why. That it may go well with you and with your children after you. And that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. See, a lot of Christians have this idea in their head that God gave us this rule because he's an uptight dude. And just wants you to follow his ways. And if you don't, then he just huffs and puffs and says, I'm mad at them. That's not why he gave us his laws. That's not why. He didn't give you the laws and statutes and rules and all those things to ruin your lives and to make it not fun and enjoy things and do all. He gave us creation. He did it because he loves you. He gave us these rules, these laws, these statutes and commandments because he loves us. Why? That life may go well with you. That life may go well with you and those that you love after you. That's why. That our days will be long and all of us will have blessed lives. It's not about living a life of legalism and judgment. It's about love and a desire to see us flourish. It's Father's Day. Dads, don't we do this with all of our kids that we love? Don't we do this? It's not because we want to put rules in front of them so that they don't have fun that they don't experience good things. We put those things because we don't want them to be hit by a car. We don't want them to ingest poison. We do these things so that they can flourish, so that they can possibly give us grandkids, right? So these types of things, we want them to do really well. So that's why we give them these rules. We give them these statutes and laws and we give them all this stuff. We frame them in a really good way because we want them to thrive. We want them to flourish. We want them to do well. We want to be good dads. It's the same with God. He's not giving you all these laws and statutes to be like hindering you. He's giving them to us to help us flourish. 
And what do you do with your kids who think that they know better than you? They think, I can cross the street myself. I can eat this. I can drink that. I could do this. I could do that. What do you do? You help frame it for them and you help them understand that that's not the best thing for you. And eventually they get old enough or they get these minds of their own that they go ahead and do those things anyway. And what do we do as loving fathers, as loving parents, as loving guardians? What do we do? We grieve. God's not going to force you to follow his rules and commandments and laws and statutes. He's not going to force you. He just grieves, grieves about it. Just like you and I do. And it's not so much that we've broken his instructions, but that it harms us. It only affects us in that way if we as fathers are prideful, that they don't listen to us. Then we need to deal with ourselves. But that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is not pride. The heart of God is you broke those things and it's harming you. It's not because you didn't listen to him. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, that your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. It's for you. It's for you. It's not for him. The statutes and the laws of God are for our well-being. It's for us. Verses 14 and 15. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock of their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. God gave them a Sabbath, a day that would distinguish them from others, a day to remember their redemption. God provided for them. God made them a promise that things to come would be better in those verses there. Do we know of God like this today? That we are redeemed, we are provided for, and we're given a promise of things to come. See, we have a great God. We have a good God. You were redeemed before the law. You have been provided for. There's this wonderful promise of better things to come. Do you believe in the goodness of God? In his creation? In him choosing you? In his redemption? In his provision of things of your life? Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your goodness in your word. And Lord, if we were to take some time and just to step back and spend some time with you, you would reveal that to us too. And I pray, Lord, for people here, Lord, that aren't really getting a sense of your goodness and perhaps they're going through a difficult time or perhaps there's just a bunch of debate going on in their head or conflict to make things seem right. And I ask, Spirit, that you would touch their lives and connect all of those thoughts you're a God of order. You're a God of logic and reasoning. And I pray, Lord, that you would make sense of things that are difficult to understand for those who are struggling with that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.